Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of anti-Semitism that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. At the beginning of September 1940, chaos reigned over the streets of Bucharest, Romania. Around 100,000 protesters marched through the city. They were furious with their king, Karl II. While the rest of Europe was being ravaged by war with Germany, Karl looked to avoid conflict. In order to do that, he made territorial concessions to the Soviet Union and Hungary, his militarily stronger neighbors. Concessions which angered the populace. Gathering in front of the royal palace, protesters shouted, give us Transylvania back, while hurling stones and firing pistols. They threatened to break into the palace and overthrow the king. Until something broke through the crowd, a limousine. The people peered through the windows, and when they saw who was inside, a great cheer went up. It was General Ion Antonescu, a 58-year-old World War I hero. Where Carol represented strife, Antonescu seemed to stand for peace, order, and strength. Hearing the cheers as he drove past, Antonescu likely accepted them with a quiet determination. He was a soldier whose greatest satisfaction came from serving his country, even if that meant standing up to his king. As Antonescu headed into the palace, he undoubtedly felt confident he could convince Karl to peacefully abdicate. The protests had grown unruly, and abdication was the only solution. Little did he realize his king had a different solution in mind. Assassinate Ion Antonescu. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season, we're looking at lesser-known World War II dictators who were allied with Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. Including Romanian dictator and Nazi collaborator Ion Antonescu. This week, we'll dive into Antonescu's complicated relationships with the corrupt King Carl II, as well as his ties with the extremist group, the Iron Guard. We'll also discuss how Romania's precarious position between Germany and the Soviet Union swept Antonescu into power. Next week, we'll explore how Antonescu dealt with the Iron Guard, his role in the Holocaust, his conflict with Romania's royal family, and how he was ultimately toppled from power. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. The Kingdom of Romania was formed in 1859 out of a union between the principalities of Wallachia and Moldavia. Situated between the Black Sea and the Danube River, it was at the crossroads of Central and Eastern Europe. Throughout most of its history, Romania was mostly an agrarian nation. Even at the start of the 1900s, the overwhelming majority of its citizens were humble and often illiterate peasants living in the countryside. In part because of a lack of education and wealth, this population was sadly especially susceptible to propaganda and fanaticism, especially when it came to anti-Semitism. The kingdom was mainly comprised of ethnic Romanians, and as the largest minority group in the kingdom, Jews were frequently blamed for the rest of society's ills. As Romania struggled to establish a national identity in the 19th century, the kingdom's new Christian bourgeoisie leaned into the prejudice. Perhaps they hoped that saying Jews were not true Romanians would help clarify what Romanian really meant. By the second half of the century, anti-Semitism was deeply ingrained into the national consciousness. However, it was also part of a larger, more dangerous drive to protect the Romanian identity from all racial and ethnic others. In June 1882, Ion Antonescu was born into this highly nationalist environment. Unlike the majority of Romanians, Antonescu wasn't born a peasant nor did he grow up in the countryside. His hometown of Pitesht in southern Romania was one of the few cities in the kingdom that experienced urbanization in the late 1800s. As such, Antonescu didn't grow up ever wanting. In fact, from an early age, Antonescu's family was determined to give him everything he needed to be a success in life. To his army officer father, success meant a good career in the military. So Antonescu was sent to military school, where he quickly lived up to his family's expectations and earned a reputation for zealous devotion and a yearning for promotion. The young soldier didn't have to wait long to earn his stripes out on the battlefield. In 1907, when he was 24 years old, disaffected peasants took up arms against rural landowners. In 1913, war erupted between the various Balkan nations. In both conflicts, Antonescu, serving in the cavalry, showcased his ability to lead. But it was during World War I that he truly made a name for himself. When the conflict began in 1914, Romania hesitated in picking sides and did its best to stay neutral. 
For the first two years, the Allied powers urged Romania to join them against the Central powers. To sweeten the deal, they promised to give Romania the territories of Transylvania and Bukovina. Transylvania was especially important because despite being controlled by the Hungarians, it had a heavy Romanian population. Many within Romania considered Transylvania to be part of the pan-nationalist concept of Greater Romania. Enticed by the offer, Romania joined the Allies on August 15, 1916. And 34-year-old Ion Antonescu was appointed Chief of Operations to the Romanian Commander of the Army of the North. One of Antonescu's key duties was shoring up Romania's defense, and during the Battle of Murashesht, he proved very good at it, stopping the Germans from taking Moldavia. As a result, Germany completely rethought their strategy, and it proved to be the final skirmish fought in Romania. But for Antonescu and the Romanians, the victory was marred by the behavior of their Russian allies. The Russians were grappling with internal strife between those loyal to the Tsar and Bolshevik, or leftist, revolutionaries. During the Battle of Marashesht, Bolshevik-inspired disobedience spread like a virus, and many of the Russians suddenly abandoned their allies in the middle of the offensive. Then, these deserters sabotaged telephone lines and bridges to hamper the, quote, imperialist Romanians. The Russian army was in such an anarchic state that Romanian troops had to forcibly disarm their own allies at gunpoint. The experience left many Romanians disillusioned with the Russians. And if they weren't yet, they certainly were after the spring of 1918. After the October Revolution brought the Bolsheviks to power, the new Soviet government made peace with the Central Powers. Abandoned by Russia, Romania found itself surrounded by German and Austro-Hungarian troops. In order to avoid an invasion, Romania signed a peace treaty with Germany in April 1918. But while Romania itself floundered, Antonescu prospered. By the end of the war, he was considered the right arm of Romania's commander-in-chief. Even though the nation was no longer fighting, Antonescu's future as a top military official was all but assured. Like previous dictators we've examined with a military background, it appears as if Ion Antonescu was content with life in the armed forces. There is little evidence that during this period Antonescu held any political aspirations. He was, by all accounts, a quiet, strange man who eschewed luxury and frivolity. His austerity was partially the result of his strict Orthodox Christian faith, which had taught him to despise corruption and immorality. In the hard honor of military life, he found a type of prestige and power which relied on neither. However, by the time the war came to a complete end in November 1918, Romania's fate was up in the air. The Allies had won, but Romania had surrendered to the Germans. Would that be cause for punishment? Fortunately, the Allies were understanding. They awarded Romania the promised territories of Transylvania and Bukovina. On top of that, they supported the Romanian army's seizure of Bessarabia from Russia, 
located in modern-day Moldova and southern Ukraine. Thus, Romania came out of World War I far fatter than it had gone into it. In fact, according to historian Denis Deletant, it doubled its pre-war population, territory, and industrial capacity. And Dion Antonescu reaped plenty of rewards in the process. Throughout the 1920s, Antonescu spent time in Paris as a military attaché. Eventually, he returned to Romania, where he was assigned to a cavalry training school. For over a decade, his disciplined reputation allowed him to rise up the ranks. And in December 1933, 51-year-old Antonescu was made chief of the general staff, the highest professional military authority in the country. As chief of the general staff, Antonescu's goal was to modernize the Romanian army. Despite its valiant ability to hold off the Germans in World War I, the military sorely lacked modern heavy artillery, tanks, and anti-armor weapons. Antonescu's plans were stymied by other military and government officials. Like the rest of the world, Romania was hit hard by the Great Depression, and many within the government were hostile to spending a fortune on a military overhaul. Antonescu pressed on for a year, convinced that his mission was essential, whatever the economic conditions. But to no avail, Antonescu began to feel he was up against a cruelly united front that didn't understand what Romania needed, and in the process, finally began to shape his views on the government. The state, he decided, had shown that it was rotten. And the more he thought about it, the more Antonescu realized the heart of that rot was Romania's constitutional monarch, King Carl II. After all, as a devout Orthodox Christian, Antonescu was convinced that the king was deeply immoral. In the late 1920s, Carl had divorced his second wife and moved out of the country in order to publicly cavort with his mistress. By the 1930s, Carl was back in Romania and the two were still together, which Antonescu saw as a slap in the face to the sanctity of marriage. Further, Antonescu staunchly opposed corruption and King Carl's government was deeply corrupt. Though in all fairness, Corruption in Romania was a centuries-long tradition and par for the course. Regardless, Antonescu found it difficult to stomach working for Carl. So in December 1934, he resigned as chief of general staff. Leaving his post, Antonescu concluded that Romania was in desperate need of transformation. He also knew he wasn't the only one to come to that conclusion. He'd reviewed military intelligence regarding a fascist paramilitary group called the Iron Guard. They, too, wanted to revolutionize Romania. Perhaps they were the solution. Perhaps, Antonescu wondered, it could be mutually beneficial if he and the Iron Guard joined forces to take down King Carl II. Coming up, Antonescu is ushered into the government, and King Carl takes drastic action against the Iron Guard. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala, and we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast. 
Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, all are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In December 1933, 51-year-old Ion Antonescu was made chief of the Romanian general's staff, a leading military position. He spent a year unsuccessfully attempting to modernize the military and getting familiar with King Carl II's corruption and scandalous behavior. Then he resigned. And began flirting with a fascist paramilitary group known as the Iron Guard, which began as the militant wing of a far-right movement called the Legion of the Archangel Michael. In 1923, an anti-Semitic Romanian ultranationalist named Corneliu Codreanu was imprisoned for plotting to assassinate politicians who wanted to grant Jews citizenship. According to Codreanu, while in prison, he received a vision from the Archangel Michael, who told him to dedicate his life to God. Kodrianu interpreted this as a directive to involve himself more in far-right politics, and in 1927, he established the Legion of the Archangel Michael. From the get-go, the Legion was fascist in character, but with a strong anti-Semitic bent. It sought a, quote, spiritual and national regeneration, promised to combat so-called Jewish Bolshevism, and expressed disillusionment with democracy. In April 1930, Kodrianu created the Iron Guard as a paramilitary wing of the Legion. Their mission was to literally fight, quote, Jewish communism. This dedication to violence led the Prime Minister to ban the group in 1931, then again in 1932, then yet again in 1933. But despite the bans, the Iron Guard continued to roam the streets, dealing out violence whenever it could. Antonescu was well aware of the group and agreed with its anti-Semitism. His notes also indicate that he viewed them as overly boastful and too idealistic for their own good. However, Antonescu's attitude toward the Guard seemed to change once he became disillusioned with King Carl's corrupt government. The Iron Guard might not be perfect, but they might make a good ally. A few years passed, but in 1936, Antonescu called upon Corneliu Codreanu and invited him over for tea. It wasn't exactly love at first sight. 
The very arrogant Antonescu couldn't stomach Codriano's own brash arrogance. And though he shared the Iron Guard's frustrations with King Carl, Antonescu hated the Guard's lack of discipline. Without it, they were just ideological hoodlums. Thus, Antonescu never committed himself to the Iron Guard, nor did he join Codriano's recently formed political party, the All for the Country Party. The All for the Country Party was, in essence, a subsidiary of the Legion of the Archangel Michael. As the political face of the Legion, the party could run for elections and represent Codriano's interests in the government. And it did so successfully. During the 1937 elections, the All for the Country Party became the third largest party in Parliament. Voters couldn't get enough of Codriano's ferocious anti-Semitism, not to mention his dashing good looks. King Carl was so alarmed by the election results that he decided to simply overturn them. But a government needed to be formed. So Karl asked Octavian Goga, a poet and politician, to become prime minister and form a new government. Goga belonged to the National Christian Party, another far-right group that happened to be pro-monarchy. And he was willing to serve as Karl's prime minister, on one condition. His friend, Ion Antonescu, would be appointed minister of defense. King Karl agreed. Perhaps he wasn't aware of the extent to which Antonescu disliked him. Plus, he hoped that Antonescu could use his tactical skill to clamp down on the Iron Guard. Meanwhile, Antonescu put aside his reservations about Karl and agreed to the post, believing he could finally reform the military. Thus, in December 1937, 55-year-old Ion Antonescu became the Minister of Defense for the ruling National Christian Party. With the National Christian Party in charge, anti-Semitism essentially became public policy. Jewish newspapers were suppressed, Jews were banned from working in restaurants, and Jewish lawyers were suspended from practicing in Bucharest. These measures were actively supported by a large swath of the Romanian population. In fact, the biggest backlash came from those who thought the policies weren't anti-Semitic enough. The Iron Guard continued to roam the streets, violently attacking Jews and other political opponents. Hoping to return law and order to the country, Antonescu met with Codreanu and offered him a deal. If the Iron Guard stopped its political violence, the state would ease its suppression of the group. Codreanu accepted. Unfortunately, nothing changed. The street violence continued. However, it wasn't just the Iron Guard attacking Jews. Rather, it was the Iron Guard attacking a different, far-right, anti-Semitic paramilitary group known as the League of National Christian Defense. And they were backed by Karl. Despite their similar ideologies, the two gangs were essentially engaged in a turf war. And as 1938 began, the violence between the two spiraled out of control. 
In early February, the League of National Christian Defense shot and killed two members of the Guard. Fearing more bloodshed, Antonescu asked Kodrianu not to retaliate. Kodrianu agreed, but only if Antonescu promised to protect him if the king tried to punish the Guard. King Karl, concerned with the conflicts between the Iron Guard and their rivals, decided on new elections in early 1938. However, when Kodrianu and Prime Minister Octavian Goga formed an alliance in the hope of sharing power, Karl interpreted that as a threat to his position as king. So, Karl decided to take drastic measures. On February 11th, he dismissed Goga and created a puppet government. Antonescu was appointed a minister as a measure against the guard. Then, on February 20th, the king abolished the constitution and dissolved all political parties. He hoped this would provoke a response from Kodreanu and the guard, giving him a reason to arrest them. But to Karl's great surprise, Kodreanu accepted the dissolution of the All for the Country party. In a speech to his supporters, he explained that he did not want to provoke force or attract violence. Kodreanu hadn't taken the bait, which meant that Karl had to invent another reason to go after the Iron Guard leader. Like arresting Kodreanu for criminal libel. Ion Antonescu did not support the plot. He called it an abuse of power and resigned in protest the day after it came up in a cabinet meeting. But his departure did not dissuade the king from going after Kodrianu. After a crackdown on the guard in March, Kodrianu was arrested on April 16th and later put on trial for treason. Antonescu was called in as a witness. When asked if he considered Kodrianu a traitor, Antonescu stood up, walked over to Kodrianu, and shook his hand. He reportedly then told the courtroom, would General Antonescu give his hand to a traitor? But Antonescu's testimony did not save Kodrianu. The leader of the Iron Guard was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Antonescu, meanwhile, suffered the consequences of defending Kodrianu. King Karl recalled Antonescu to active service and assigned him to the Third Army Corps in Bessarabia. Far from the capital, Antonescu was essentially in exile. Meanwhile, the Iron Guard was furious at the conviction of their leader and took their anger out on Romania's Jews. Guardists burned synagogues, attacked Jewish businesses, and shot a Jewish lawyer. Fed up with the guards' lawlessness, King Karl decided to take drastic action. He ordered Kodreanu and 13 other imprisoned Iron Guardists to be summarily executed. Late in the night of November 29, 1938, Kodreanu and his men were taken out of their prison cells, dragged into the woods, and strangled. Afterward, the bodies were brought back to prison and buried. The government, meanwhile, released a statement saying that all 14 men had been shot while trying to escape. No one believed the excuse. Many Romanians were convinced that Karl had gone too far and abused his power. 
Even many in the cabinet felt uncomfortable about what had happened. Unfortunately, it's not clear what Ion Antonescu thought about the executions, but it seems likely that Antonescu would have been disgusted by Carl's heavy-handedness. The Iron Guard's reaction, on the other hand, was clear. Fury. On September 21st, 1939, six Guardists retaliated, shooting and killing Prime Minister Armand Colonescu. The assassins then took over a local radio station, confessed to the assassination on air, and then waited for the police to come arrest them. They didn't care about the consequences of their murder. They just wanted Carl to feel their wrath. In retaliation for that retaliation, Carl ordered violent reprisals. The six assassins were taken out of their cells and summarily shot. Their bodies were then dumped on the spot where they had killed the prime minister. It appeared as if King Carl was readying himself for one final battle against the Iron Guard. For years, he had put up with their violent nonsense. Now, he was going to put an end to it. But that's not quite how things went. While Karl battled the Iron Guard, the rest of Europe had fallen under the rule of fascism. By September 1939, Nazi Germany had taken control of Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland, and dominated the economic affairs of southeastern Europe, including Romania. Hitler pressured Karl for food and oil to feed the German war machine. Karl relented, at least in exchange the Germans provided Romania with weapons. Karl also seems to have decided that Nazi ascendancy meant he'd better back off the guard. Though Germany gave very little support to the Iron Guard, the Nazis still admired the Romanian ultranationalists. So Karl ordered several guardists to be released from jail. Then he established his own political party, the Party of the Nation, and asked the Iron Guard to join it. Perhaps that would win Hitler's favor and secure Romania's independence. Though Karl feared Germany, he feared the Soviet Union more. He knew Soviet leader Joseph Stalin was eager to reclaim the land that Russia lost post-World War I and worried that Stalin would capitalize on the chaos in Europe. But as long as Germany and the Soviet Union eyed each other with suspicion, Romania hoped to play the two giants against each other and stay independent. Unfortunately for Karl, that's not how it worked out. Unbeknownst to him, Germany had already agreed to support the Soviet Union's claim to the hotly contested Bessarabia in northeastern Romania. The same Bessarabia in which General Ion Antonescu was currently serving his so-called military exile. In June 1940, the Soviets demanded that the Romanian army retreat from Bessarabia so that the Red Army could occupy it. Karol felt trapped. Without German support, he couldn't possibly hope to take on the Soviet Union. As Karl contemplated how to proceed, Ion Antonescu decided to take action. Since he had been stationed in Bessarabia since 1938, no one understood better than him how dangerous the situation was. So on June 26th, 
Antonescu raced to Bucharest, arriving only six hours before the Soviet deadline for withdrawal. Antonescu urged Karol to request an extension for withdrawal, both to maintain the army's morale and to gather equipment. But the king and his advisors did not take Antonescu's advice. Instead, he agreed to Stalin's demands for an immediate evacuation. For Antonescu, it must have been the last straw. The king didn't even have the backbone to ask Stalin for more time. But more importantly, Antonescu was keenly aware that his soldiers would likely suffer greatly in the retreat. Any hope that he could work with the king, that he could convince him to regenerate the Romanian state and infuse it with the discipline it needed, was shattered. King Karl was too weak. If Romania was going to be transformed, Antonescu was going to have to take more radical action. Coming up, Antonescu confronts King Carl in a bid to save Romania. Now, back to the story. In June 1940, the Soviet Union demanded that Romanian troops immediately evacuate the territories of Bessarabia. General Ion Antonescu urged Romania's King Carl II to negotiate for more time, but Carl rejected Antonescu's advice and caved to Soviet demands. On June 28, 1940, the Romanian army began their withdrawal. During the retreat, soldiers brought with them reports of harassment by Jews, who allegedly insulted and attacked them as they fled. In truth, the reports were largely exaggerated, and much of the harassment was carried out by Soviet or Romanian communists. Nevertheless, popular imagination quickly assigned blame to Romania's Jewish population. Romanian soldiers retaliated against Jewish citizens. In one incident, a group of soldiers fired on Jewish mourners in a cemetery, then attacked Jewish homes, ultimately shooting 52 people. The army's retreat from Bessarabia was also a devastating blow to Karl's prestige, or what little was left of it. Meanwhile, the whole affair helped Ion Antonescu. Word spread that Antonescu had urged Karl to stand up to Stalin and tried to save the army. As a result, Antonescu's popularity among the people increased. Naturally, this scared King Karl, and he immediately ordered Antonescu's arrest. Several of Antonescu's friends, worried that the general would end up like Kodreanu, appealed to the Germans to intercede. The Reich's special representative for economic problems in Romania warned King Karl that if anything happened to Antonescu, Germany would not be pleased. Tail tucked firmly between his legs, on July 11th, the king released Antonescu. The next day, Antonescu submitted his resignation to the army. Meanwhile, Karl's position was just getting worse. After the humiliating retreat from Bessarabia, the Hungarians were inspired to try to retake Transylvania in northern Romania. They even reached out to the Soviets to explore the possibility of a joint attack on Romania. Adolf Hitler 
not wanting to potentially lose Romanian oil, offered to intervene and arbitrate a peaceful resolution. At the end of August, he called Romanian and Hungarian representatives to a summit in Vienna. Unfortunately, it didn't go Romania's way. Hitler, always looking to correct the so-called errors of World War I, informed the Romanians that they would have to give Hungary virtually all of Transylvania. Plus, they would have to return some land to Bulgaria. King Karl knew that he was powerless against the much stronger Germany. He needed their protection. So he agreed to Hitler's arbitration, known as the so-called Second Vienna Award. In the course of a few months, Romania had lost a third of its land area, and with it, over six million inhabitants. Its official population dropped from 19.9 to 13.3 million. Unsurprisingly, Karl's legitimacy and popularity were in shambles. He had nowhere else to turn. So in early September 1940, he invited Ion Antonescu to become prime minister. Antonescu knew he held all the cards. He agreed to the role, but demanded that he receive all necessary power. Karl had no choice but to agree. Still, Antonescu had his own master. The first thing he did was meet with the German minister in Bucharest. He assured him that Romania was loyal to the Nazis. Not only would Antonescu honor the Second Vienna Award, he also promised to keep the oil, coal, and methane gas flowing from Romania to Germany. Germany was pleased. But many Romanians were still not satisfied with this new balance of power. It wasn't just the concessions to Germany that angered them, but the fact that King Karl had any power left at all. The Iron Guard demanded that Karl abdicate and protested in the streets of Bucharest. They were joined by much of the city. Between September 3rd and 6th, nearly 100,000 people demonstrated in front of the royal palace. During the height of the protests, the Iron Guard occupied radio stations and fired on the palace. The situation was quickly spiraling out of control. Antonescu, who had long wanted to see Karl fully out of power, pounced on the turmoil. On the evening of September 5th, Antonescu warned Karl that he was not willing to start a civil war and open Romania up to foreign occupation just so that Karl could keep the title of king. Karl met with his counselors and discussed the possibility of stripping Antonescu of the powers which he had just given him, or even killing him. However, Antonescu somehow got wind of the discussions and sent an aide to demand that Karl abdicate by 6 a.m. or else. With his back up against the wall and no support from the people, the king caved. On the morning of September 6th, Karl abdicated in favor of his 19-year-old son, Mihai. Later that day, Karl, his mistress, and their entourage packed up a train with royal treasure and fled the country. The Iron Guard shot at them as they departed. With Karl gone, Ion Antonescu found himself the most powerful man in Romania. Upon taking the throne, 
King Mihai granted Antonescu unlimited dictatorial powers, naming him leader of the Romanian state, or conducator. While Antonescu always felt Romania needed to be saved from the corruption and moral decay of Carl II, it seems he himself had never actually shown ambition to achieve total power. For the most part, circumstances outside of his control, or anyone else's, had swept him into power. Still, Antonescu now was in a position to enforce the discipline he believed Romania needed. According to historian Denis Deletant, quote, Antonescu brought to office the mental hardware of a general, one which placed discipline at the head of his priorities. He had to put an end to internal disorder and try to establish what external security he could. It wasn't going to be easy to achieve those goals. While Antonescu was relatively popular among the people, he did not have the full support of the army. For example, not everyone was happy with his willingness to accept the Second Vienna Award and bow down to Germany's demands. Plus, there was still the matter of the Iron Guard. True, Antonescu never officially joined their ranks, but there were ambiguous sympathies and history between himself and their fallen leader, Corneliu Codreanu. The military was weary of the Guard. Some officers and enlisted men did have similar ideological beliefs. However, most of the military was disturbed by the Iron Guard's attempts to make itself into a second army. Suffice to say, Antonescu inherited a fractured, unruly nation. Keen to bring order, one of Antonescu's first acts upon coming to power was to revitalize the institution of the monarchy as a symbol of Romanian unity. He invited the Queen Mother, who had been driven from the country by the adulterous Carl, to return and be with her son. Antonescu desired that the royal family be, quote, an example of morality, sobriety, of equidistance, of modesty, of civic consciousness, and patriotic stance. Very soon, however, Mihai and the Queen Mother tired of Antonescu's arrogant, domineering attitude toward them. He was willing to use them as a political tool, but refused to show them the regal respect they felt they deserved. Relations between Antonescu and the royal family quickly soured. For now, King Mihai wasn't willing or able to challenge Antonescu, but there was no guarantee that sooner or later, royal pride wouldn't assert itself. In the meantime, Antonescu turned to the task of forming a new government. The general had no love for democracy and detested political parties, which he believed to be inherently corrupt. Nevertheless, he needed to form a coalition of support. No dictator rules alone, after all. Thus, Antonescu decided to form a new government drawn from the two largest parties, the National Liberals and the National Peasants, combined with the Iron Guard. His decision to include the Guard seems not to stem from a particular zeal for them, but out of the pragmatic realization that they enjoyed a massive base of support in the country. Unfortunately, the other two parties ultimately refused to work with the Guard. After heated negotiations, the National Liberals and National Peasants walked away. 
With the other parties withdrawing from negotiations and popular support for the Iron Guard reaching a fevered pitch, Antonescu even appointed the Iron Guard's new leader, Horia Sima, as deputy prime minister. Though still not officially a member, Antonescu began wearing green, the color of the Iron Guard. And equally as important, he capitulated to their request to name the state. On September 14, 1940, Ion Antonescu and King Mihai proclaimed Romania to be a national legionary state. On the surface, it seemed like the partnership between Antonescu and the Iron Guard should have been a perfect match. Both were xenophobic, ultra-nationalist, and anti-Semitic. And yet, there was no love lost between them. Antonescu wanted to transform Romania by imposing strict military discipline onto its people. The Iron Guard were the antithesis of discipline. They were rowdy street brawlers eager for a fight, who wanted power but wouldn't know what to do with it when they got it. Their alliance could only last so long. A showdown was coming. Either Antonescu or the Iron Guard would have to be destroyed. But no matter who was left standing once the dust settled, it would be Romania's Jewish population who would suffer the most under the victor's reign. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Antonescu's struggle with the Iron Guard and his role in the Holocaust. For more information on Ion Antonescu, amongst the many sources we used, we found Denis Delatant's Hitler's Forgotten Ally, Ion Antonescu and His Regime, Romania 1940-44, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, Good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.